So we're going to continue the series this morning on Ecclesiastes. Uh, we started off last week, we spent a lot of time talking about Solomon and, and who, who wrote the book and all that stuff. But this week we're going to jump kind of right into the text and we're going to talk about uh, his continuing assault, I would almost say, on what we believe of the important in life. Uh, Solomon, as we shared last week, is one of the wealthiest and wisest people to ever live. You remember he asked God for a, a discerning heart, and, and God gave him a discerning heart. And he was able to rule wisely because he had a discerning heart. That means he could tell good from evil in the world. But then Solomon kind of set out to understand what world, what life is all about. And we talked about that last week, how he wanted to pursue what value is all the work that we do under the sun. And he sort of makes some really amazing claims about what's truly and ultimately valuable. And so we want to continue that study this morning in Ecclesiastes. But before we do, I'm going to always do a pray, ask God's Holy Spirit to teach us. I hope you know this isn't a church thing. You can pray and ask God's Holy Spirit to teach you anywhere you are. We ought to be doing that in our lives. And so, um, but join me now as we pray this morning together. Father, we just thank you so much for the great and good news of Jesus Christ, who came to die that we might be free of sin, but we might have a whole new way forward, indeed a whole new family in you, a new and perfect Father, and a great and awesome brother in Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the person dwelling in and around us in our lives. We just thank you so much for the great revelation of Scripture. And we pray this morning for more of that. We want to know more. We hear Solomon's wisdom. But we want to understand the way Solomon understood. We ask for your wisdom that you would impart it to us. That we might see, maybe for the first time today, something we hadn't seen before. Or maybe be reminded that we've long forgotten about who you are and what's truly important in this life. Uh, Father God, you are the great teacher. You are the great um, creator. And we can do nothing apart from you. So, Father, would you impart your wisdom to us this morning? Uh, we rely upon you for it. We wait upon you for it. Would you glorify yourself? Thank you for yourself. We, we love you so much. And we thank you for your gifts to us. We pray um, prayer in the mighty heart of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, it's really funny because last week Solomon just big case, I mean last week, like he wrote last week, like 3,000 years ago, about, you know, what's really truly important. And, and, and he said this great thing, he said, there's nothing new under the sun. And remember, I made kind of a big deal, he said, who could say, look, this is new, this is new. And then I had to laugh this week, because I don't know if you all were paying attention. I've asked a few people before service this morning about, you know, did, did you see what happened this week? And I want to ask you all now as a group together here, we're going to have a little interaction. How many of you, if, if I ask a question, how many of you saw a Falcon Heavy? How many know what that is and say, yeah, I saw that? Not necessarily live, but you saw it. You know what I'm talking about, Falcon Heavy. Really? Okay, one, two. Not very many people. Okay, there we go. You guys being shy, like, what's the deal, right? You can, it's no big deal if you saw it. I thought it was hilarious because, like, last week we're here in Solomon, this great teacher whistle saying there's nothing really important in the sun. And then this week we have Falcon Heavy. Um, Falcon Heavy was a rocket launch that went off in uh, Florida. My wife, my wife, my family and I were blessed to be down there for a previous launch on like a satellite. It was really, people are boring, right? This is the next big deal. Um, Falcon Heavy was the equivalent, it's the beginning of the equivalent of what we did when we went to the moon in the 70s, right? Which was a huge deal. But here's the funniest thing about what happened. Uh, and if you're not a space nerd, I apologize for what's about to happen right now. But I'm a bit of a space nerd, okay? Falcon Heavy 
was a three rocket booster system that was going to put a payload in space because the goal is to go back to the or maybe to Mars. That's really the goal. Matter of fact, they said it clearly in the broadcast. They said, our, the reason that SpaceX is formed is to take people to Mars. And you might go, that's crazy. People at Mars, like, that's, what? That's not going to happen, right? But that's what this was a test of. And so they had to launch a rocket to prove that they can get these rockets up there safely. And if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to watch it because then the rocket boosters land again on Earth, which is hilarious and crazy to watch that happen. Maybe you've seen that a bunch of times by now, but these things come back. You know, they should like fall off in the ocean when they're out because they brought the fish out and they would get salvaged or whatever. But these things re-land on the pad and get re-prepped and refueled and then get launched again. And that's what makes it kind of an economically viable mob for going to space. You guys are like, stop talking to me, right? This is hilarious. So they had to put a payload in the, in the nose of the rocket. They had to do something. So they, they used a concrete block. But, you know, if you don't know, SpaceX is owned by the company that owns the car company known as Tesla. And so the owner of Tesla, who's a little, you know, like, like crazy guy, whatever, he's like, let's do this instead. And he puts that in space. A group convertible this week. This actually happened. Now, I know there are people who go, we didn't build the moon, and it's all a hoax, and all that. I, you know, there's pretty good evidence this actually happened, and this was put into space this week. They took a dummy and put it in an astronaut's costume that's a legitimate, co uh, like, astronaut's, uh, what do you call that? Um, space suit. And they launched it into space. And I was watching these images, and I thought, this is crazy. This is crazy. There's a, a roadster in space now. I know we have satellites and we have the Hubble. We, we, I know we have the space station. People have been there. But it just seems so funny to put a car in space. There's another image of it. I got four of these. I wanted to show you this morning. You can see that one. But look at this crazy looking. Some dude in a convertible in space, right? This thing had four uh, firing sequences, the first two side boosters, and then it was a center burn. And then that thing hung out there for about six hours, and then there was a final burn on that thing, and it was going to shoot to Mars. That car was going to go to Mars, and then it's going to go around Mars, and then come back and go around the sun, and then come back and go around Mars, and they're estimating for a million or maybe billion years. Unless it hit something. And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, there's the sun. And I'm hearing Solomon's words. Who can look at this as new? That looks kind of new. I don't think that's happened before. And that got me to thinking, do, do, we, do we have to like, and this is what Solomon's going to get to. Do we have to not, like, is it like, there's nothing new, so there's nothing worth doing? I don't think that's the point. I mean, clearly, this is probably the first car in outer space, except for the moon buggy, which may or may not have been an actual production model car that was driven on the road. Um, but this thing is actually a production model car that was driven on the road and is now flying around in space, just for those reasons that the are stuff. Maybe it's hard to tell you about this morning. Well done. But there's nothing new. I don't think that the point is we should not like things that are new. That is, I am okay being super excited about that. That's kind of really cool thing that's happening. It's kind of interesting that there are scientists and engineers who can figure out how to put a booster back on the Earth and use it for better space travel. It's kind of interesting to me that we're willing to send people to Mars to try to colonize the planet. Right? And that, there are some people who are like, this is crazy, you should be doing it. But is that what Paul is saying? He says, nothing new. 
I don't think so. I think what he's asking is, is it ultimately the most important thing? All the technology, all the ability, is it ultimately the most important thing? We're going to pick up this morning in Ephesians, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and it's on page again 641. We're going to move through a, quite a bit of material this morning, so we're going to go together. But we're going to pick up where Solomon kind of left off. He said, I thought about all these things, and that to his meaning was just thinking about them. And I think this way he starts with what I call the grand experiment. He's going to go out in life, and he's going to try and see what actually works. What actually makes sense in this life. What, and not just for... Um, People who are like, you know, our superheroes are really gifted, but for ordinary people like us. What's the point of what we're doing in line? Check it out. Read with me. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. I thought in my heart, that's Solomon, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolishness, or another translation of madness, to laugh if there's no value there. And what does pleasure ultimately accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, that's foolishness, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So he kind of stopped and he says, I want to explore foolishness in wisdom, which is kind of counterintuitive. He's like, I'm going to go out, I'm going to explore my great pleasures, and I want to, I'm going to indulge in wine, I'm going to enjoy life, and I'm going to see what really matters. But all the while, you'll hear him say this about the book, wisdom never left me. He's still self-aware. He's not someone who's just out indulging for the sake of indulging, but he's trying to figure out what's really the point. Is it foolishness? Is it madness? Is it drinking and partying all the time? Or is there something that's more valuable? Than that. That kicks off here in verse 4. And this gets into like the, the, the you know, kind of real um, work that Solomon does in his life. It says in verse 4 I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards, right? He's like agriculturally, you know, and he's like a construction guy. I made gardens and parks and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves to a flourishing tree. I mean, he's moving water to his plants like 3,000 years ago. This is unheard of. I mean, he's like got just ridiculous things going on. Great projects. I, um, let's see. Yeah. Seven. I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my own household. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. I do not want to pass that over without saying how um, kind of ridiculous that sounds now. The one of Solomon's great claims to power and authority and experience is that he owns slaves. In our own country, we have a lot of brokenness over the issue of owning people. And so a lot of people go, oh man. And I, and I actually was studying this this week, and I found people who were using the Bible to validate their ability to hold people in slavery, which is crazy to me that you would use the scripture in that. But here we have Solomon saying, I had all these, and if you actually look at the, um, the Hebrew on this, and not to say it in any way, but it says, I had uh, servants and maids. But it means men and women slaves. They were indentured servants. I want to talk about that for just a second, okay? This is what happened. The Israelites took the land. You remember that, right? They came into the promised land. And there were the people there called the Canaanites. Um, 
And the Canaanites uh, were conquered by Israel in several forms. One way was that the Canaanites were actually overrun by some Israelites in some areas. And, and, the other, and they were told, you know, take them as, as captives, right? Take their, their women and children as captives. Um, and then in other places, the Israelites didn't quite fit the kind of biblical line that they kind of took over, uh, and they eventually became to rule over the Canaanites. But there was this group of people called Canaanites that were kind of turned into indentured servants um, in Israel. Uh, they owed them something, you see, because Israel was the conquering party in the war, and they would have to serve against their will. Well, Solomon inherited that from David, right? But like Solomon inherits this, um, these servants from his father, so he has some of that going on. But then, this is even more radical because the Bible says that no Hebrew should be held in slavery by another Hebrew, another Israelite. Solomon actually took some of Israel's people and forced them to labor to go get cedar from Lebanon. The other the thought is that because the people who were um, captives would, would flee, they would get out of Israel, they would run away from captivity. So he actually indentured some Israelites uh, to go and to get the Sumibo to bring back their home and stuff, the cedar from Lebanon. I want to say that this dude isn't perfect, right? We have a chance to look at wisdom and all Solomon and splendor and gold and stuff. You know how he built all the mansions? The temple? It was built a lot of it, but the trees that the temple. It was built with, with forced labor. And you might think, well, why why talk about this? Right? Well, let me talk about four prayers of the people. we rail against it. But how many of you in your life end up building a kingdom of somebody else? Let me just think about it. I know you say, well, I, I choose that. No, I make more. I choose more than that. Yeah? How I many of you are walking away from this thing? <laughs> you ever think about that? You know, you go downtown. I used to go downtown. I love downtown. Oh, there's old guys here. You kind of enter into an agreement. I'm going to help you succeed, and you help me succeed a little bit. And I'm going to help you build a bigger building, or a bigger company, or a bigger whatever, a bigger house, and I'm going to have a little bit bigger house myself. There's a funny thing about the labor held by um, Solomon. I told you this after, given this day, I told that afterwards, the kingdom split. The Israelites rebelled against their king because they had enough of this. And, uh, and because he's not honoring God, there's lots of reasons that it, that it happened. Um, but Israel ends up being sent, in captured and enslaved itself. They end up being foreigners in a foreign land. And later on, when Israel comes back to the promised land, some of the slaves, some of the numbers, but a great portion of the population of the Israelites are the descendants of slaves who return with them the promises of God. There's a little word here that says they were born into my household. I want us to think about that. And that we think of all the cruelty and it seems crazy to ever think that I bought a male and female servant, slave. It was crazy to buy somebody. But there was in the household protection as well. You think today about like um, some of the stars show up as poppy, you know. Well, what are they doing? But they're glad to be there. 
with that guy or that girl. You're glad to be in the inner circle. And there's some of that going on here as well. That although it's indentured servitude, you are part of a great, massive movement in Israel. And indeed, you're part of one of those of being led by God. So we have this kind of great claim he has. And then to make it very clear, he says, not only did I own the animal, I own animals. He kind of puts it in the same category. It's like you show up, you look at my camels. It's not the court to have all the camels. And we go, that's ridiculous, right? But then we go, look at all my cars. You ever have to see that? Like Jay Little's garage and stuff like that? Look at all my cars. Wow, you must be important to have all these cars. It's just different cultures with the same issue. He's saying, I have great worth and value. Verse 8 says this, I amassed silver and gold myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers. Now here's another group he brought in. And a harem of women as well. The, the delights of the heart of a man. Everything he could pleasure and had more than anyone else. Right? He'd have his famous singers come in. And not just come in, he would, he would kind of own them. He would say, you're my singer. You're going to sing for me in, the, in, the, in my house or in the temple or wherever I want you to be. And it was like a traveling band. Um, all the pleasures. And we have to see that. We have to see that. All the life of the heart of man. That means mankind. Like, wherever you would take your heart. That'd be so cool if I had that song and had it. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me ever. And all of this... My wisdom stayed with me. And then here he goes, double down. I deny myself nothing that my eyes desire. I refuse my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. And here he goes, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, it was great success. Is that what it says? Some of you aren't looking at the Bible, so you don't know. You could probably believe that. Solomon said, I looked at everything I had, all I own. I said, yes, I finally made it. That's not what he says. In verse 11 he says, and I examined everything my hands had done and all that I toiled to achieve. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing had been gained under the sun. I think it's worth listening to that. You know, how many of us go, when I get there, I'm going to have a meaningful life. That's going to tell me this. I'm going to move into that neighborhood. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have that business. I'm going to be that person. It's almost as I got there and I examined it. Here, here's a funny thing. When we look at people who are uber successful, and this is almost cliche to say it, but it's worth saying again. And you really talk to them, you know, one of my favorite quotes reading someone, I can't remember what the interview they said, um, they said, does money buy happiness? And the person said, yeah, it buys a lot of happiness. Is money ultimately meaningful? No. Not unless that's the totality of your meaningless is your own, is your, I mean, is your own happiness. But in some ultimate, like, of, you know, huge stories, you realize no matter how much you've done, it doesn't ultimately matter. It doesn't matter. And this is being repeated now, but you look up to him and you think, yeah, I 
It would not matter. Alright. Verse 12 then. So he gets like all that. He says, nothing there. Verse 12. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What what more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? Like, he had nothing left to do. So I'm just going to go party that crazy and see if there's life in that. I saw the wisdom was better than folly. So there's a the truth there. Just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks around in darkness. So I wanted to see, there's some, here's some good fruit that Solomon bears. He does realize, as he goes into the craziness and foolishness of life, that there is something better. And it's called wisdom. He realizes that it's better to have wisdom than to be a fool, right? It's better to be wise than to be a party. That's what he's saying. It's better, you ever heard that, what is it, um, uh, what is it saying? Um, ignorance is bliss? He would disagree. He would say, ignorance is ignorance. Wisdom is better. But then look how he describes it. He says, wisdom gives you eyes to see all the foolish lies. Now that sounds like a good thing, right? But I want to remind you that just before this passage today, he said, for much wisdom comes sorrow, and more knowledge brings more grief. This is what he's saying. We're all walking around in our And no one can see what ultimately matters and what doesn't matter. I want you to imagine that for a minute. You're sitting in a dark room and no one can see. And then all of a sudden, you are given the gift to see you can see where the chairs are, you can see where the obstacles are, you can see where the doors are, you can see some of the stuff in the room, right? A fool is just walking around stuff in the stuff. They have no idea what they're doing. It's just, right? You're seeing those little cars just like running around and bumping something, turning around those vacuums these days, and going up above. They don't be doing it, just trying it, right? That's what a fool does. But a wise person looks to be in that room at the gift of God, and, and, and they, can, they can ultimately go, oh, I can avoid that chair, I can miss this obstacle, I can. And go to that door over there. Sounds pretty good. To be able to see is better than you right? I mean, as far as like things in our life. But then after this, he says, I came to realize, in verse 14, if you're with me, I came to realize that the same faith overtakes both the wise and the foolish. And then I thought in my heart, the faith of the fool overtake me also. That means it's going to be the same thing. Even though I can see it from the room, it often does me no good because I'm going to have the same faith as a fool. The faith of the fool will overtake the wise also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself in my heart, this too is meaningless. Because the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. We talked about that already. Legacy. And in the days to come, both will be forgotten. And then here's the punchline. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. There's a limit to a life. Right? He's only human. All the wisdom only brings grief because he's only human. He sees it. And as much as he wants to kind of say, I'm better than the fool, ultimately the fool and the wise is up in the same place, which is the grave. Look at verse 17. I mean, if this book, the Bible is awesome. I tell it not. This book's so good. So I hated life. That's the problem. I just ran over this. Had everything and everyone. He said, so I hated life. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, really. Like, that's the book that you get real about. If you're just trying to 
is hate. Hate the futility of it. We're standing at a friend's funeral at the graveside, and we're there, and we're mourning, and we're broken, and we're sad, and we just go, I just hate it. And some of us who are young are foolish enough to go, I'm going to avoid that. I'm not going to die. I'm going to live forever, right? I'm not going to, in my flesh, I'm not going to ever have to deal with this. But then you're confronted with your own mortality, and you, you hate it. Solomon, the wise man, says this, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun is grievous to me. See, here's the trick. We can believe for a while it's worth doing. I'm just going to kick my work until I'm retired. I'm just going to finally get my own game where I'm going to get my retirement skills. I'm going to finally own my own business. I'm going to finally do that thing. And then I'm going to be satisfied with what happened, right? And he goes, I can't get there and just because it ultimately has no importance. Is it worth doing? Right? Yeah, I think worth doing. Is it, is it ultimately going to define who we are? Solomon says, no, it won't. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Verse 18. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun. Because I, now here's what he, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether you will be wise or a fool? Yet I will control, uh, yet I, I, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and all the skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. This is like the rich kid syndrome. Solomon's talking about the rich kid syndrome here, you know. I'm going to do all this work. I'm going to be so disciplined. I'm going to pour myself to the adventure only to give it to the generation. I don't want to be wise or foolish. I don't want to be good or bad. For them, for the legacy, for the world. And he says, this is meaningless. Verse 20. So my heart begins to spare over all the toils and labor under the sun. He starts to go, why did I do all this? What good is it? Because a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave everything he owns to somebody else who has not worked a day for him. What does a man get for the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief, and even at night his mind never rests. And this is meaningless. So he goes, come and give everything away. You know, there's this great analogy I've heard before, like about board games. When you get done playing a board game, everything goes back in the box, you know. And uh, and it puts my death in that way. Like everything else goes back in the box. You, I love Monopoly. No one will play with me. Like Monopoly, I like playing sometimes. But people don't want to play Monopoly because ultimately you become like little tyrants. I'm probably the worst of it. Little tyrants of the board. But you don't play. You got to throw the pieces away and fold it up and because yeah. you don't get to keep the ten ounces of or the office, right? you don't get to keep all of them. There's a shifting down in our lives that forces us to deal with our real beliefs, our humanity. And he said, I'm going to give this away. But this is his first revelation. I thought it was a little easy. Wisdom is better than foolishness. Look at, look at verse uh, 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in the word. Now here's the first time that God has mentioned. This too I see is from the hand of God. 
Because without him, who can be my enjoyment? The psalmist says here that it's enough that you're enjoying his life. If you have a job that you like, that's a gift of God. If you can enjoy the fruits of your labor, if you can have a meal and go, yes, God has blessed me with my work, and I, I get to give everyone to serve, and I get to be a blessing to others, and I get to eat a nice meal, and God has given it to me. That's the gift of God, he says. And this is his first kind of, I told you last week, he's going to kind of pile the meal and go, that's about as good as we can do. This is about as good. This is where he starts off. The first time he's got it, he says, here's something good. You can eat and drink and find satisfaction in your work. And that is from the hand of God. So if you serve, you certainly have forefront of God, and it's a gift of God to enjoy it. You see, all of a sudden you begin to find purpose in your work as part of a bigger story of what God is doing. It's all about your achievements, your goals, right, your stuff. It's about being part of what God is doing, and then you get to actually enjoy the fruit of your labor. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth, only to hand it over to the one who pleases God. He says it's the same problem for both. If you, if you believe in God, you're laboring to glorify God and serve God, then you're, you're, you can enjoy the work. But if you don't, you don't even enjoy it, and you still got to give it all away. This too is meaningless, a chasing after you live. Alright, we're going to press on now, because this is all, he kind of stuff into work, okay? Chapter 3, Psalm says, There's a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heaven. A time to go on, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to weave, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain. Time to surge and time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Time to tear and time to mend. A time to be silent and time to speak. A time to love and time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Try to lay out from the mouth day like seasons of life. Honestly, I read that list all too lightly and all like this. I go, really? Is there a time for me? Really? Is there a time for war? Really, is there a kind of tendency to go, I'm falling outside, I'm waiting. But he's like, if you live long enough, you're going to realize there are seasons of life. There are things that come and go. And as a matter of fact, Solomon, I told you before, he wrote the book of uh, Proverbs and the Song of Songs and the book of Ecclesiastes. Here he gets kind of like whimsical about, you know, it's on purpose that he There's an ebb and flow to life, right? There are good times and bad times. There's morning and there's tears. And sometimes we come up on one side that we say, well, that's all I can do now. I'm just going to mourn forever. Why? There's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance again. There's a time to keep things. There's a little past. There's a time to get rid of throw away. Everything has a season. Hey, the song was good to that effect, right? Right out of the Bible. But top ten years. Like But he says there's seasons like this, and we're trying to think, what does the worker gain in this world? Like, what, what you go through and what seasons of life happen, ultimately, what good is it? I have seen the burden God has laid on him. He has made everything beautiful, here's a great word, in his time. 
Sometimes they're on the way for God, you know, to bring about that new season of peace, that new season of war. Sometimes they're not going to bring about that season of love and season of hate, you know. We just get impatient with God. I'm not waiting for you any more on that. But he says that God makes everything. Read about it. God has made everything beautiful in his time. Can you enjoy life? Yes. God has made everything beautiful in his time. And look at this. He also has set eternity in the hearts of men. If they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, now all the problems getting deep, like earth we have. That something matters. Life matters. Do all your work matters. Your work matters. The things that we do matter. And there's eternity set in a man's heart. And no one can fathom what God has done for the end. I know there's nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toil. Here he says again, this is a gift from God. You can eat and drink and find satisfaction with work your hands. Man, that's a gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever, and nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be taken away from it. God does it so that men will fear him. Why would I say revere him? The things that God has done will stand forever because he wants men to respect him as God and not think too highly of ourselves. And then he says, whatever has been, whatever is, has already been, and whatever has been before, and God will call the past into account. Whatever is, has already been, and whatever will be, has been before, I missed that, and God will call the past into account. And I saw something else on this side. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. There's injustice in the world. Saul is thinking, it's not right. What's happening here is not right. It's not good. And he kind of breaks down the two things, judgment and justice. No one is discerning rightly. And then there's no justice when it's discerning rightly, if it is discerning rightly at all. And I thought in my heart, verse 17, God will bring judgment, both the righteous and the wicked, because there will be a time for every activity. There will be a time for every deed. Solomon plays out some accountability. No matter what we think of our lives, no matter what we think of our accomplishments, ultimately God will bring an account, he says, to the righteous and to the wicked in our lives for the things that we've done. This will be God's work to bring the judgment. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see what they are like, or what they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over man. Everything is meaningless. Mythically, he compares the wise ones to the fool and says they're all going to die. Now he's sitting there like, yeah, you're just like a dog. You're going to have the same faith that they have. All go to the same place, all come from the dust, in verse 20, and to the dust, everything returns. Now here's a great question. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth? 
So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot in life. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Two great questions we ought to ask in our life. What ultimately happens to us? When we get past this life, right, the same fate, the same fate as the animals, what's our ultimate destiny? And he asked these questions, and I want to say to you, you might go, man, what a drag, right? But you have to have courage to ask these questions. Because he says here, who can ultimately know if a man's spirit goes up or if it goes down like an animal? Who can ultimately know? And the second question he asks is, who can bring a man to see what will happen after him in his life? Who can do it? Reminded of uh, Peter in the New Testament. He's following Jesus around. He's not following the New Testament. That's the story is told in the New Testament. And people are leaving Jesus. They've had enough. This kingdom on earth, this carrier cross, this deny yourself and follow me. Just give up your life and you'll find your life. They, they've had enough of it. If you don't take of my body, you will have no part in me. And they've had enough of it. And they all walk away. They go, Forget it. And there's this moment where Jesus turns to Peter and he says, What about you? And Peter says, Where will we go? You know what he says? Because you have the words of eternal life. What else am I going to change? Because you have the words. Eternal life. Solomon asks, who can know? Who can know? If you're pursuing success and pleasure in this life, the best you can hope for is to enjoy your work and enjoy the fruits of your labor because that's the gift of God. But you only know what happens to you when you die. Who can take you to show you what happens after you die? Solomon doesn't wrap it up there. He goes on to talk more about justice and injustice and oppression and all the brokenness of the world. But that's a good question. God, for all of our work, who can ultimately show us what happens? Who can show us what comes next? Because this is the point of Jesus' ministry. This is the point, church. The reason that we celebrate Easter, the reason we believe in a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus, the reason that we believe that Jesus, when he said, I'm going to go to heaven, when I get there, I'm going to send a counselor to you, and he's going to instruct you in your heart that there's more to life than what you pursue. Coming up in chapter 4, Solomon says this, Better a young fool than a wise old king who cannot take a warning. This book is a warning. Don't make all about this life. God is doing something way bigger than this life. Who can talk about what happens after life? Who can talk? I've had conversations with people who say that no one knows. 
You don't know. You haven't died. Come back to life. Tell me. Little kid at the New Testament experience. Write the book about it. I was there. I saw it. I saw it myself. My dad. On death's door, he died. He didn't die. He was about to die. He had freaky visions, he said. He couldn't talk about it. It's freaky stuff, man. I can't talk about it. Who is that? <laughs> Who can show me? Oh, I'm Paul. Tell you all, my hero, I'm Elon Musk. God. Jesus. Jesus is the most powerful in the world. A little light. Make no mistake. Look at the warnings you Don't live a life of folly. Don't live a life of folly. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that someone who's just dead and 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 it's a little heavy, but if there's stuff in the life that you go, God, I've been chasing that. I've been chasing that. And that stuff, I think, is more important than God himself. I know it's dangerous. Like, I know this thing is dangerous. Because you go, man, it sounds like I've been doing a whole life all the way now. What, what am I going to live for? i got to live for God. Who am I going to follow? I've been following this North Star my whole life, this achievement, the constant. Who am I going to set my North Star? Send it to Jesus. Go, like, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. No one else can do it. No one else sees on the grave but the God who made you. No one knows the resurrection feels like but Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you so much for your great testimony. Your great testimony to the facts of life. Thank you for Solomon and wisdom and articulation and courage to ask really hard questions. Big friends and co-workers and family members who bring these things up and go, because Trump car, you don't know, you didn't die. They're right, we haven't died. Probably we have tasted and seen something way more beautiful and glorious in this life. Father, for your revelation to us, your Holy Spirit's presence, your salvation has come to us and brought salvation to us. How is all this? How does our purpose be thanks and praise today? We thank you for that. You deserve it. You just brought it to us. Our friends are here and they're just struggling. And they go, I hear God talking to me, but I can't let go of that thing. I pray that you'll give me courage. Oh God, would you just rescue me from the lodge trap this moment is. But ultimately, we're dependent upon you and the Holy Spirit to be working alive. Wake us up. Wake us up. People sleeping in this life. Forgive us. As we claim Christ, the risen Savior, and we claim the stuff of the world. The more we talk about it, wake us up. And you pray in Jesus.